Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. I was standing in the restroom of Authentic Café off Melrose Avenue in Los Angeles, trying to catch my breath. Working treble shifts in Hollywood restaurants and nightclubs while trying to squeeze in acting opportunities, burnout was creeping in. I was a woman on the verge, wondering why I even came here. I went back out to the floor and spotted an Irish friend who waved me over to his table. He told me about a film that was meant to be shot in Ireland, but it had changed location. It would be shot in Hollywood now. There's only one role left to cast. Call the producer. Yeah, yeah, I said, but I'd no intention of it. I'd no agent, no sellable name. You just didn't cold call a producer. My friend persisted. I relented. And on my next break, I stood at the restaurant payphone and used the change in my apron pocket to call the number he gave me. That night, I was stunned to hear the producer's voice on my answering machine. For the next few days, we kept missing each other. A small spark of something ignited in me. I put a headshot and resume in an envelope, called a cab. The producer phoned as I was standing by the door. Come over right away. At the Chateau Marmont, he said, I'll bring you to meet John tomorrow. John who? I asked. John Houston, the director. Speechless. Afterwards, I told no one. A few days later, I was sitting in the hallway of a Hollywood mansion. I needed deep breathing now. I was feeling kind of frozen. Floor-to-ceiling windows gave a view to the swimming pool and John Houston in his wheelchair. He was being connected to an oxygen machine. I was so nervous I could hardly take that in. I didn't yet know that this film, The Dead, would be Houston's last. His parting gift to his daughter Angelica who would star in it, and Tony, his screenwriter's son. Frozen as I was, John Houston's easy smile warmed me as I walked out towards him. He asked me about my training. People always said, just say you trained at the Abbey Theatre, but I couldn't lie to this man. I was a late starter, I said. How old, he asked. Twenty-eight. He roared laughing. My dear, I didn't get going until I was fifty. Conversation with him came easily. We talked about Washford, where I'm from, and my training at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. He didn't ask me to read any lines, but somehow I didn't find that strange. As the meeting finished, he kissed my hand. Stepping out into the California sunshine, everything looked different. A copy of Joyce's Dubliners, given to me by an old love, took up residence under my pillow. Each day I resisted phoning the producer to say that I'd be willing to make the coffee on set, clean toilets, anything. Two weeks later, I got the call. Is it okay for you to play Miss O'Callaghan? I put my hand over the receiver and roared. Yes, that would be fine, I said. I contained my joy and went back to wait more tables. Months passed, and I'm not sure if more serendipity was at play, but we began filming on January 6, 1987. Little Christmas 
The day Joyce immortalised in The Dead. Our first cast reading, we were sitting at a large mahogany table in a warehouse near Magic Mountain, somewhere in the Nevada desert. All heads were down in scripts. My character hadn't any dialogue at that moment. I watched the other actors and became aware of another head looking up and straight at me. John Houston beamed a smile and held my gaze. During filming, a shot had to be taken from my position. I had to move, but where? There was nowhere to go except an empty chair beside Houston. I couldn't. I felt so awkward. In the end, I said, Is it okay if I sit here? You better, he said in his deep voice. It was a long wait for the lighting setup. What could I say to this man? Then I remembered. My friend Anya used to play with Angelica as a child during their school days in Galway. I began to tell him this. He was mesmerised. The cinematographer signalled readiness. No, John said, I have to hear this. Shortly my scene came up. I was standing at the window of a Dublin house, looking out at snow falling in our pretend world. In reality, I was sweltering in my Edwardian costume. Frank Patterson and I rehearsed our scene. Miss O'Callaghan says to Bartle Darcy, My grandmother's old gardener said in November it was going to be a hard winter. And he said that the berries were very red on the holly. That means a hard winter. Before I knew it, John said, That's a take. What? I blurted. Well, dear, you can do it again. But why would you? You are Miss O'Callaghan. Easter Sunday, a month after filming, I was at a loose end, grocery shopping at Trader Joe's. I'd heard that John Houston was staying at a hotel near there. On impulse, I picked up a bunch of Easter lilies. Figured I'll leave them at reception and run. He'd probably have family or friends with him. But mother of God, the receptionist called his room. Stunned, I found myself being led right there. He was alone and expressed delight at my visit and the lilies. We talked of Ireland. Well, he did most of the talking. I was still in a state of shock. You know, you were up there with the best and you shone, John told me. Such words from him went straight to my heart. It was a dream of an Easter Sunday afternoon both far from Ireland. Maybe we were each filling a void with connection, love and beauty. As all art does, I guess you could say. On a grey day in November 2016, a small group gathered outside the Kingfisher restaurant on Parnell Street. 
They came from near and far to reenact a moment from just over a century before, the surrender by the leaders of the Eastern 1916 uprising to the British Armed Forces. This group were the descendants of those pictured in a photograph documenting the surrender on the same street corner by Padraig Pierce to Major Lowe, the British officer charged with suppressing the 1916 uprising. The moment of surrender from just over 100 years ago is captured in a series of grainy black and white photographs. It is fascinating to compare these two groups now on the very same spot of ground occupied in widely different circumstances 100 years apart. In one of the 1916 images, standing beside Pierce is nurse Elizabeth O'Farrell, who had remained with the wounded men in the GPO throughout Easter week. She supports Pierce in surrendering, although she is barely glimpsed behind him. For almost a century, her presence and bravery were all but unknown. Recently, she has emerged from Pierce's shadow to own her place in this moment. Also in one of the photographs, standing beside his father, Major Lowe, is a tall, gangly young man in uniform. John Lowe was on a break from the fighting on the front in France when the rising erupted in Dublin. Doubtless caught unawares, he was enlisted by his father to assist in the surrender process. He is only 18, which may account for his louche posture in the photographs. He seems casual, indifferent, as interested in his cigarette as he is in the formal events that are unfolding around him. Had I come along that day in 2016, when these descendants gathered to commemorate the surrender 100 years previously, no doubt I would have taken out my phone, photographed the event and shared it on social media. If I had, there would have been an intriguing connection between the phone in my hand, the technology that allows me to do this, and the people gathered outside the Kingfisher restaurant. Young John Lowe's life would not follow the example of his father, Major Lowe. 27 years after the events of Easter 1916, he is living in California. It is 1943. John Lowe, now renamed John Lauder, is a leading man in film, a Hitchcock star, and is about to marry another European émigré, Austrian movie star Hedy Lamarr. It is a third marriage for both of them, and it is their son and his own son who will stand with the group on Parnell Street in 2016. Their mother and grandmother Hedy Lamarr was known as the most beautiful woman in the world. A heavy crown to carry, especially when you were also intelligent, talented, and an earlier version of what we would now refer to as a tech geek. Hedy, at 27, had already led several lives. She had escaped an earlier marriage to one of Europe's top ammunition manufacturers. As a young trophy wife, she had entertained military leaders such as Mussolini and perhaps even Hitler. She absorbed much of what she heard discussed around her at various dinner parties. Unable to reconcile herself to what she saw happening in Europe, Hedy fled Austria in the late 1930s via London to Los Angeles. As America entered the war, she was intent on helping the Allied forces. An inventor as well as an actress, she used her knowledge of wireless communication. In California, she instigated a collaboration with the composer George Antai, best known for his ability to remotely synchronise 16 pianos to play in unison. Together, they created a technique for scrambling the wireless device that guided torpedoes to their final destinations. Their goal was to halt the devastation to transatlantic shipping, then crippling the Allies.
1942, they had patented their invention. Hetty understood that if they were to succeed, her fame and gender might prohibit their ideas being taken seriously. Anti went to Washington alone. As she feared, upon finding out who they were, the Navy did not take them seriously and their patent was shelved. Hetty was advised to go to work selling kisses on war bond tours, which she did, raising millions of dollars. However, 20 years later, by the Cuban Missile Crisis, their ideas had been remembered and subsequently were developed successfully. This idea of frequency hopping, the ability to send a message wirelessly over many frequencies, a message that is secure and can survive various interferences as it travels to its destination, emerged from the military and is the basis for our mobile phone technology today. Hedy and George Anti never enjoyed any acknowledgements or benefits from their efforts, as their patent had expired by the 1960s. Like nurse Elizabeth O'Farrell, Hedy spent most of her time with perhaps her most important contribution going unrecognised. But by the time she died in 2000, a new generation had come to understand the significance of their collaboration, and films like the recent documentary Bombshell continue to bring her story to new audiences. Like Nurse O'Farrell emerging from Pierce's shadow on that corner 100 years ago, Hedy Lamar is finally gaining the recognition she deserves. Consider this next time you're on Parnell Street, looking up something on your phone, checking your messages, or asking Siri for directions. Cousin Aline was a formidable figure who intimidated everyone around her. She was six feet tall, thin and erect, with a long, severe white face. She patrolled her property in County Cavan like a figure from the Old Testament, wearing a long, drab tweed coat, a wool scarf around her head, seemingly never removed, even indoors. Outdoors, Long staff in hand, she inspected the farm and her large garden, and it seemed everything quaked at her approach. The sight of her, stalking slowly, would have us children scurrying in the opposite direction. Luckily, we saw little of her, except at mealtimes, and indoors our poor cousin Michael, visiting from England, had it even worse, when politeness dictated that no gentleman remained seated while a lady especially an older lady, was on her feet. So when Cousin Aline made her entrance to a room, it meant he had to stand, miserable and self-conscious, for the eternity it took to get herself settled. Her husband, our Cousin Gerald, echoed her every opinion and judgment, repeating them ever more emphatically as she uttered them. In fact, we all concurred with her. It was the only thing to do. One's own view was totally unimportant and probably wrong anyway. Horses and hunting were frequently opined upon. 
Hunting was a necessity, and anyway, foxes enjoyed the chase. Everybody knew that. My own inadequate riding performance was dissected during mealtimes. What if the pony had bolted on me that morning? Cousin Aline barked. Ireland was an island, and he would have had to stop sometime. One seat, or in other words, how you sat on a horse, was of the utmost importance, and a good one was achieved by riding for years without a saddle. And Princess Anne, poor thing, had a most unfortunate pony club seat. My sister and I, and sometimes the English cousin, were invited to stay during the holidays, and it is difficult to say if we enjoyed our time there. There was a constant stream of challenges, many of which we failed, but there was satisfaction and relief in getting through some of them. Posture, facial expressions, success in controlling bored and fractious ponies, conventions of eating, managing cutlery, a nicely turned thank you letter, all were commented upon, and there was little respite from the tests and reprimands of Cousin Aline. Easter approached, and the question of the Easter eggs arose. Where were they? A couple had been bought for us, and such frivolity was very unusual, but now they could not be found. I was a rather sneaky child who poked and pried through my surroundings in that house and others, as I felt that any and all knowledge gave me an advantage and might be utilised in the daily battles. I knew where the Easter eggs were. Naturally, I couldn't tell them, as that would reveal the fact that I had been investigating areas where I had definitely no call to be. On the other hand, we were desperate to get our hands on the glittering objects. I asked, oh so casually, would they be somewhere like uh, um, the bureau in the dining room? Nonsense. How would they get there? I was stymied. Oh, such a nuisance. I suppose we'll have to buy more, huffed Cousin Gerald. Absolutely not, said Cousin Aline. We're not buying more eggs. They may turn up before they go home. Result, no Easter eggs. Sometimes I think about this incident now when Easter approaches and what two homesick little girls and their English cousin could have done. Resourcefulness, of which we had plenty, really came into play in the areas of avoidance, keeping out of sight and trouble, or anticipating how we could display heartiness and hardiness during a ride in the lashing rain. So proactive strategy was not strong in our range of skills. Now I fantasise about possible actions we could have taken. I feel we could have quietly removed them from the bureau in the dining room and consumed them sitting side by side out under a hedge somewhere on the farm. Or another refinement, which I rather like, would have been to have left the silver paper wrappings neatly smoothed and folded back in the bureau beside a beautifully written thank you note. I've been a Roman Romeo, my Juliet's have been many. 
But now my Roman days have gone Too many hinds in the fire Is worse than not having any I've had my share Leipzig, St. Matthew Passion There is a storm tonight in Thomaskirche Judas scuttles about, arms like claws reaching. At last, he embraces the quiet Lord and is embraced. The mobs, in chorus, agitated, rush like waves towards the shore and out again. I sit, attending, back of the church, scarce seeing. My neck hurts, arthritis ageing. I resist at first the music, eyes dry, belly taut. I have touched on grief before, its long, bleak alleyways. Sopranos, basses, so many ocean breakers wash busily amongst us, bearing high the poster of this wanted man. Do you know him? Do you recognise this man? Surely you are one of his disciples. What has he done, this man? He has been crying in the streets, on the lake shores, urging the needs of the poor and oppressed, asking the questions we do not want to hear. So, so, so let there be noise and chorus. And though the sea is washing over us, we who stand or sit do not drown. It is Bach Prospero. And we are ticket holders. Under my feet there are shifting sands. To my left an elegant granite column lifts into the darkness of distant rafters. Beyond, on the cliff, the seafarer Christ is on the road. Our music now is ended. Once more are we hopeful of calmer seas, auspicious gales. We have risen out of the wreck and know we are again forgiven. We are such stuff as flotsam and we are blessed to be cast up safe tonight on this city's shores. But, I ask, as we listened, were not our hearts on fire within us? My grandfather, Frank Toll, was an anti-treaty Republican from Katy in County Armagh, fought in the War of Independence, was interned in the Curra, came back to Katy and smoked and drank and coughed and mended boots and clocks. He passed away on the 13th of July 1979 and as he lay on his deathbed the day before, he asked my father 
to open the window. The twelfth parade for that part of County Armagh was in Cady that year and Granda wanted to hear the orange bands. My father was shocked. Sure, everybody should have their day, my grandfather said. Now that was an extraordinary statement at the end of the life of a man who wasn't exactly in the reconciliation business. Granda's words were taken seriously and often quoted. My father always tried to see both sides but remained true to who he was, a constitutional nationalist. Better to live for Ireland than die for it, he'd say. He had me round all 32 counties of Ireland by the time I was 10. He genuinely couldn't understand why he'd sing anything other than an Irish song for a party piece. And he wanted me to grow up, play midfield for Armagh and join the guards. And thankfully for everybody, none of that happened. But I know that my father voted across the North's Great Divide. At primary school in Camla, I learned Irish, I played the boron, the whistle, learned about the old South Armagh poets like Pedro Dornin and Art McCoy, sang the songs, but both in school and at home, this was just part of who you were, not a stick to fight anybody else with. And sure, if the 12th came to Newry, I'd sneak in to listen to the bands, try to look inconspicuous and eat the free sausage rolls. Like everybody else in the 70s and 80s, I grew up with that constant background noise of security alerts and incendiary devices and booby traps and police messages on TV late at night asking key holders to return and check their premises. And then slowly, very slowly, that soundtrack evolved into talk of compromise, initiatives and talks about talks. In a sense, though, politics operated at a level above our heads because we just had to get on living our lives. You had no choice. But we were always aware of the two traditions in the North and you quickly learned to read the room. You know, what school did you go to? What team do you support? All that kind of thing. The subtleties of separate lives. Then came a ceasefire and with it, hope. And Bill and Hilary came over in their good coats and turned the Christmas lights on for us. But the white smoke didn't appear over castle buildings in Stormont until a few years later. And in the agreement, those two narratives, nationalist and unionist, were recognised as equally valid. What Frank Toll had described as everybody having their day in 1979 got the much grander title of Parity of Esteem in 98. Then for the first time in 80 years, people from Coleraine to Cahersyvine turned out to vote for the agreement in a historic all-island referendum. People in the shops and the doctors would say to you, are you voting? And we held our collective breath as the returning officer came out and said very deliberately and very clearly, yes, 71.12%. We were happy. And people were happy for us. In fact, we were riding a wave of goodwill that stretched far beyond these shores. And in our joy and innocence, we didn't even see the dark clouds over the road ahead. 
By Easter 1998, I was married, we'd bought a house and the first child arrived later that year. He's living in London now. But as any parent of a 25-year-old knows, even though they're up and running, you still worry about them. And it's the same with the agreement. We live with an imperfect and fragile peace. Better than what was there before. But there are still open wounds. And those voices of tolerance and compromise and respect can sometimes get drowned out. Way after the agreement, Senator George Mitchell talked about having had 700 bad days and one good one. But I really feel that my granda was onto something in Katie back in July 79. Yes, we have to be true to ourselves, but from Ballymena to Ballancolig, whether you're singing Derry's Walls or on Puckerbulla, everyone should have their day. When it's not always raining, there'll be days like this. When there's no one complaining, there'll be days like this. Everything falls into place like the flick of a switch. Well, my mama told me there'll be days like this. Sunflowers for Parnell. Easter 2022 for Elaine Lequillenoil. Good Friday on O'Connell Street. A baritone evangelist is belting out God's songs just across from the GPO. At first I think he's singing Sean South from Gary Owen, but it's his own mangle of faith, fire and Catholic brimstone. I watch and listen for a while, taking in the fervour and indifference. Then walk north, Pause at a street stall to buy sunflowers for their light and their great butter blackness. The man selling them tells me a friend of his is buried under a tree nearby, an old soak who loved drink and the north side of Dublin. We got his ashes into the hole they were digging for that tree. He must be the only man is buried on this street. The flowers suit you, sure flowers never put calories on a body. Walking home, I get an approving look or two, forgetting that the sunflower is one of the symbols of Ukraine. And then, a lovely shock. Someone has placed sunflowers at the base of the Parnell Monument. The same brown paper wrapping as mine, the same glow and suddenness as the five I'm holding. I've never seen flowers left for Parnell before. Who placed them there, I wonder, and why? The song of the holy singer fades as I cross the Lewis tracks. He's gone when I return on Easter Sunday, and so are the sunflowers, the cold stone bare. On this morning's programme we heard Easter Lilies for John Houston by Maria Hayden, Easter 1916, Hedy Lamar and Mobile Technology, by John MacDonald Easter Eggs Found Easter Eggs Lost by Hester Scott Leipzig St Matthew Passion by John F. Dean Everybody Should Have Their Day 
by John Toll. And that was a longer version of a talk commissioned for the recent Sharing Peace, Sharing Futures event at the Abbey Theatre, celebrating the Good Friday Agreement. And Sunflowers for Parnell, Easter 2022, a poem by Vincent Woods. The music was The Lass of Ockram, sung by Frank Patterson, Sweet for Piano for Four Hands, number two, by George Anthile, played by Guy Livingston. I'm putting all my eggs in one basket, sung by Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. From Bach's St. Matthew Passion, part one, number 27, Thus My Jesus Is Now Captured, sung by Charlotte Ashley, Elner Minnie and the Monteverde Choir, with the English Baroque soloists, conducted by John Elliot Gardiner. And Days Like These by Van Morrison. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The producer is Sarah Binchy. To listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE radio player or the programme website rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday hyphen miscellany. You can find more from this and other arts and culture programmes on rte.ie forward slash culture. And you can also follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter and all the usual podcast platforms. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.